0: All right, well, let's go ahead and get started here this morning back in our theology class. You have uh, pages there in front of you, hopefully, that you were able to access. You see we're on page 29, so if you remembered, if you were in this class before and you remembered, you have pages 1 through 28 stored up, and we are continuing on through systematic theology, Christian theology, and we're on page 29, starting a new section. We ended... Section 5 last time, on page 28, talking about the nature of the Holy Spirit. So, we have talked about, so far, um, the first four categories there on the left. Theology proper, which is who God is, the nature of God. Anthropology, the nature of man. Christology, the nature of Christ. And we had just finished pneumatology, which is the nature of the Holy Spirit. Now we are starting Bibliology, which is the nature of <laughs> Bible. Perfect. Yeah, the Bible, the nature of the Bible. And so we'll spend uh, a few lessons talking about Bibliology. Now, there will be a lot of similarities to page 25, if you have those earlier pages. When we were talking about the nature of the Holy Spirit, we talked about inspiration, because the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the biblical text. And so there's going to be some overlap with that. uh, But I suppose it doesn't hurt any of us to go over that again. So we'll be overlapping just a tad. But how about I pray, and then we will get into the lesson. Father, thank you so much for this day that you've made. Thank you for all the good things you've given us, including this opportunity to be together and look into your word and to, by your grace, grow closer to you. Help us to understand more about who you are, who we are, and what the Bible is, what this word is that you've given to us, that you would be honored in our study, and that there would be a life application made by your Spirit that we would not just be changed in our thinking, but we'd be changed in our our living, that it would have an effect on how we go about living our lives. God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy Mercy that's new each morning. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I took my clicker on my sabbatical and forgot to bring it back. So I got to hit the computer every time, which is a real bummer for me. So hopefully by next week I'll find it or have a new one. But uh, here are the categories of theology that we've been going to. I just gave a a pretty brief overview of what these categories are, uh, the first four or five anyway. Yeah, we can set up another table back there, guys. No sweat. The acoustics in here aren't the best. Sorry about that. (laughs) But thanks, guys. Appreciate that. All right. So, um, again, going down the left side of this column, this is the order that we're going in in this class, too, by the way. Theology proper, nature of God, the nature of man, nature of Christ, nature of the Spirit, nature of the Bible... Now starting this column, where we'll go next, who knows what soteriology is? Soteriology. Yeah, good. Rex said it quietly, a little timidly, but he was right. Yeah, very good, very good. Nature of salvation. It comes from the Greek word soter, in reference to salvation. Ecclesiology. What's that one? The nature or the study of the church. Eschatology, the study of last things. Angelology, the study of... Oh, hey, we're all quick on that one. And even Israelology, the study of Israel, because that's obviously prominent in the biblical text through God's program. So that's where we're going with all these things. And uh, right now we are here, all right? Um, I don't know how long all these classes will go. I just don't know uh, as far as marking on the calendar when this will end. I just know this is where we are, okay, uh, because it largely depends on how much interaction there is in the class. I'd never want to squelch that, and if classes go longer, then it will take longer, and that is totally okay, all right? But just wanted to reorient you about where we are because it's been two months since we met like this, I think. So, yeah, you just kind of got to get your bearings again, and uh, here we are. That's where we are in the, in the process, okay? Okay. So the lesson, again, on page 29, the lesson that we are starting today is the first lesson in the section about bibliology, one inspired book. There are these basic five words that you need to know we're going to cover over the next two lessons, inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, hermeneutics, exegesis. So some of those words look familiar, some of those words maybe don't look familiar, and that's okay. But we're just going to go through them one by one as we consider the nature of the Bible and how we are to approach the Bible, how we are to interact with the Bible. Uh, These are the words that we're going to be covering. And you see on your sheet today, we're going to be starting just right at the beginning with that word inspiration. Very important. So again, some overlap with the previous lesson. I'm going to share with you some quotes on the inspiration of the Bible that I've already shared with you. But uh, again, it doesn't hurt us to look at these again. Charles Ryrie in his book, Basic Theology, says this is what inspiration is. When we think about the inspiration of the Bible, that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. That's a sentence, but it takes up five lines, right? It's one sentence and there's a lot in there. The inspiration of the Bible is God superintending the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error, that's actually inerrancy that we'll talk about next, his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. This is MacArthur and Mayhew, their book, Biblical Doctrine. God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's own thoughts. Okay, a more succinct, it's not really a definition, but a succinct commentary on what inspiration is. Wayne Grudem, from his systematic theology, even shorter, all of the words in the Bible are God's words. What does inspiration mean? If you want to really reduce it down, it means that all of the words in the Bible are God's words. Okay? So let's uh, give you my definition. This is your blank at the top, the first fill in the blank here. Inspiration of Scripture is the doctrine of God's intervention into history through the written word with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. Okay, so the first blank there is intervention. Inspiration is the doctrine of God's intervention into history through the written word with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. So the Bible wasn't just a book that was put together by a bunch of random dudes and then all of a sudden a bunch of people come to revere it and say, wow, that's a really good book. Okay? That would be something else. That would be like an encyclopedia. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. The, the Bible is not uh, merely a product of creatures. The Bible is a divine book. The Bible was inspired by God. God was involved in the production of the Bible. And we have to start with this idea of Inspiration that he was involved in such a way that the human authors were said to be inspired by God. They, and we'll define that based on a couple of passages. You see, we've got 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1 there on your sheet. That's where we're going. So you can actually go ahead and turn there if you want in your Bible to 2 Timothy 3. But we see that the language that the, the authors of the biblical text use is that God has inspired them and the ones before them to write what they are writing. Inspiration, Very, very important. So as we think about what's at stake in this whole endeavor to define the inspiration of the Bible, there's actually a great deal at stake. If you go one direction here with well, one of the many directions you could go, if you choose one of the paths of how you're going to define inspiration, define how the Bible came about, you could end up with essentially saying the Bible is basically a man-made book. You could say, yeah, God, you know, God was involved. There is a God and he was involved in their lives, just like he's involved in my life and your life. He's, he's there. And they were inspired in the sense that they saw a beautiful sunset and David wrote a song and that's it. Okay, now what, what's the end product of that view of inspiration? No longer God's word, is it? It's just a guy writing a poem. Okay. So there's actually quite a bit at stake. If you, if you go that direction, if you, go, uh, if you end up saying the Bible is basically a man-made book that's really good, well, now it's lost authority. Because even though it might be a really good book and there might be some great principles to live by, it's really no different, again, than an encyclopedia. Or a self-help book like Stephen Covey's How to Win Friends and Influence People type book. It's, it's just right there on the shelf with those But if we go the direction of saying, look, God was actually intimately involved in the process so that the final result of what came off of their pen was exactly what he wanted them to write. They are his words. Well, now we've got a book that's in a class of its own, don't we? Now we have a book that has authority. Now we have a book that is divine. So important to keep all that in mind. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew say the doctrine of Scripture is absolutely fundamental and essential because it identifies the only true source for all Christian truth. Scripture repeatedly claims to be the Word of God. The prophets appealed to it as the foundation for God's promises and judgments. Christ and His apostles based the whole of Christian doctrine on the Scriptures. So again, a lot at stake here. Okay, Our goal is to discover what the Bible has to say about itself, not to impose a preconceived definition into our theology. That's always the goal. Anybody can start with ideas that they already have and say, this is what the Bible says. But then when you say, well, show me, then they can say, uh, it's in there somewhere, right? We don't want to be like that. We want to know what the Bible says about itself. And we see that Scripture speaks of itself as being directly from God and consequently authoritative. Joe. We will get to that. Okay, yeah. Yep, that's a great question. Yeah, how did, how did they know what to write, essentially? Were they, I know you, like you, no one would say this, but was it essentially the equivalent of having an earbud in your ear, a headphone, and God speaking, and then they're just writing down what he's saying? Or was it something else? We'll get to that, okay? And that's, a, that's really like kind of the heart of that question of defining inspiration, okay? We'll, we'll come back around to that. Well, let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 3, and then we'll also look at 2 Peter chapter 1. So who can read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 for us? Rex, go ahead. Okay, yeah, and I like the way the NIV translates the word that the New American Standard has as inspired. In verse 16, New American Standard says, all scripture is inspired by God. Uh, the NIV says God breathed, which is actually a more literal translation. I, uh, I broke this down um, a, whenever this was, a couple of months ago. Um, the word is actually two Greek words together. It's a compound word. Theo, Thea is actually how it's pronounced in this word, meaning God. Okay? And then there's the second part of the word, Noustos, Thea Nousos, and that word as it's combined with God means breathed. So Paul here, the apostle is saying All Scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God. Now that's quite a startling claim. What was in Paul's mind, do you think, when he says Scripture? Verse 16, he says, all Scripture is inspired by God. What did he mean? What do you think? But what is? What is breathed out by God? Which, which words? The words of Caesar? The words of Pharaoh, king of Egypt? Oh, the words of the Bible. Well, Paul didn't have a Bible like we have today, right? He, didn't, he wasn't able to tell people to turn to Second Timothy as he was writing Second Timothy. <laughs> okay? So what was Scripture to him? Or what was his Bible that he would have at that time? Yeah, the Old Testament. We have to start with, of course, foundationally the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. They did have a bound text, a canon of the Hebrew Scriptures. And Paul, of course, quotes the Old Testament all the time, as did Jesus. It's also possible at this time, because this is the last letter that Paul wrote of his life. It's possible at this time that there were uh, copies of the Gospel that were in good circulation. We know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul quotes the Gospels where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, where he instituted communion. Paul wasn't there whenever the Lord instituted communion. So perhaps a copy of the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew had already gotten around quite a bit by that time. Since this is Paul's final letter that he wrote before his death, there were 12 other inspired letters that he had written before this time. So um, I, I think Paul not only had in view the Hebrew Old Testament, though that is certain, but I think it's quite possible or even probable that he had in mind what the New Testament apostles were writing, too. We, uh, we see in Peter, if this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 15 and 16, where Peter says, um, Paul's letters are Scripture. So that means, number one, Peter knew about Paul's letters. And number two, he calls them Scripture. That's a really important development all the way back in the first century, isn't it? that the apostles were recognizing each other's work. So I don't think it just went Peter to Paul. I think it also went Paul to Peter, recognizing what Peter would write, would be inspired as an apostle. Okay, And so um, that's important to realize when he says Scripture, that there's uh, something he had in mind, and it's definitely the Hebrew Old Testament, but probably also some New Testament books that were already in circulation. But he says here that all of that scripture is God breathed. It's breathed out by God, and then look at the result. Because it is breathed out by God, scripture is profitable, as you should expect. If something is breathed out by God, how could it be more profitable? How could it ever be more profitable? God ultimately gives what we need, and He gives us what what we need to live for Him. What we need to know, He gives us profit. And it's profitability for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And I love verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate or mature or perfect or complete, yours might say, equipped for every good work. So, How can you do good in this life? How can you do good for God? It has to be, every good work has to be rooted in what God has said, what God has breathed out in the word of God. It starts, of course, with faith in the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, which we find in scripture. It's the central message of scripture is that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and all are to bow the knee to him. And then from there, we are just opened up to this amazing, like gold vault of instruction. In fact, it's even better than gold. You know, that's how the authors of Scripture talk about Scripture. It's more precious than gold, more precious than silver. And we just get to explore for the rest of our lives. We get to explore what God has said. What a beautiful, wonderful thing. Any other thoughts or questions on 2 Timothy 3? Good? Okay. Well, let's go to 2 Peter 1. So turn toward the back of your Bible. Before you get to 1 John and Revelation You'll see Second Peter chapter one and let's have someone read verses nineteen to twenty-one. Second Peter 1, 19 to twenty-one. Who's got that? Stan, go ahead. Prophetic. <laughs> All the way to the end of the chapter there. Next verse. Very good. All right. So we have here, again, the word Scripture being used. I I think whatever definition you're using in 2 Timothy 3 that we just looked at for Scripture, it's the same definition here. And Peter basically says... Here's something that Scripture is not. Here's something that Scripture is. So someone tell me, based on this passage, what does he say Scripture is not? All right. Man's interpretation. Or you could, you know, essentially see that as man's effort. Okay, that's the the theme there. Scripture is not what man's putting into it. That's what he's saying. But instead, scripture is what? Hey, okay, it's prophetic. And which person of the triune Godhead is invoked here? Yes, prophetic and Holy Spirit. He's not using the word inspired, okay? This is my word I'm putting here. But you see the same kind of idea as inspired, I, I trust where we don't see the word theonustos as we just did in 2 Timothy 3. We don't see the word God-breathed. But we see carried along, that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God himself, the Holy Spirit is God, he carried these human authors along so that the word is, at the end of the day, not their own, though that's a factor, we'll come back to that. The word ultimately is not their own, but the word is God's. Because men, look at the very last phrase of verse 21, men who were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the conclusion for Peter here is the scripture is the word of God. You read the scripture and you're hearing God speaking. These men spoke from God. Okay. Yes, sir. So the, the men were the ones who were speaking from God. So they're actually, it's, it's the words that are used uh, from almost like two different angles. Inspired means, you know, God breathed means God putting in. These are God's words going through the men. The spoke from phrase is saying these are men speaking from God. So you've got God breathed saying God is giving his words to the men, and you have spoke from being the men are receiving from God. It's the same idea, but from two different angles. Good question. Other thoughts or questions on Second Peter 1? Good? Okay. Well, let's launch off from these two passages and consider what, again, what it means to be inspired if we can get a little more specific. We believe in verbal, plenary inspiration. You see that on your sheet there in the middle of the page? Verbal, plenary inspiration. Um, plenary. What does that word mean? Plenary. Now, you've, you've probably heard this. Say that again. No, not beginning. You've, you've heard this probably only in one context, at least that's coming to my mind. When you go to a conference somewhere, there are like breakout sessions and then there's the plenary session. And the plenary session, well, breakout sessions is when the group breaks out and you're in groups doing uh, smaller group conversations about whatever. If you've ever been to a conference for work, for instance, you'll see that you have options from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m., these different breakout sessions you can attend and you go to attend one of those. But at 11, everybody comes back together in the main meeting room for a plenary session. That's because all are together. Plenary means all. Okay? That's what that word simply means. So we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means words. Plenary means all. Okay? Verbal plenary inspiration means that all words of the Bible were inspired by God. That's essentially what that means. All words of the Bible were inspired by God. Now, we just got a definition of inspired from 2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed. So you can say all words of the Bible were breathed out by God. All words of the Bible, they're not man's interpretation or man's effort, man's input, ultimately. But ultimately, all words of the Bible are prophetic, meaning they are from God. The Holy Spirit moved men along. The result of God's input, breathing out, is that all of the words are inspired by God. And here's kind of gets back to Joe's question from earlier. This is so interesting. God maintained holy control over the words in accordance with the writer's individual personalities. So Joe was asking a very good question. Did God like just speak to them and they just heard what God was saying and they wrote down every word? And the answer is no. Answer is no. Okay, so let's dive into that a little bit. There are incorrect views of inspiration that carry huge ramifications for how we understand the authority of the Bible. There's the dictation theory, the conceptual theory, and the natural theory of Scripture, and we're about to define those uh, as you see on your sheet. And they're all false views of understanding how uh, or what the nature of Scripture is, okay? But they all affect. The authority of the Bible. Dictation, conceptual or dynamic, and natural theories. So let me define these for us, and then I'll pause again for some questions. The dictation theory of inspiration is essentially that earbud that you have, and God is speaking, and the person's writing all the words. The human authors did not choose their own words. That's, at the end of the day, what that, what that is. God himself is choosing words. They are not choosing words. They're receiving specific words from God, and they're just writing down what they've been given by God. They are dictating what God has said. They're stenographers, essentially. That's what this would be, or or transcribers of what God is speaking into their ear. Okay, That's the dictation theory, and I'm saying that view is false, and I think you'll understand why. Because at first it's like, oh, that sounds really good, right? That kind of takes the human element out of it totally, but the human element isn't out of it totally, okay? So that's the dictation theory. The conceptual theory is that God gave the writers thoughts, but not words, also known as the dynamic theory. He gave them thoughts, but not words. So this, you know, for example, would be um, Paul dealing with uh, the Corinthians, and uh, they had many issues. When you read through 1 Corinthians, you can see Paul addressing sin after sin after sin, And uh, say for chapter 6, where Paul addresses Christian lawsuits, Christians suing one another, you've got uh, God saying to Paul, hey, you need to tell them that they shouldn't be suing one another. That's not appropriate for Christians to do. And that's all he gives them. And so then Paul gets that thought from God, and he writes out this chapter where he's explaining why they shouldn't do that. His explanation is his own. His explanation is not the word of God, but the thought is, the concept is. That's that theory, the conceptual theory, and I believe that view is false, okay? Uh, Because what you do end up with is Paul just having his words in there, and at the end of the day, it's not God's word. It's God's concept, but not all the words are inspired, okay? And then finally, there's the natural theory where it's like, okay, the Bible's authors were just really wise men who were right on many things, but not all things. And I'd say this is probably the most dominant view in America, where there is still largely a, a, a good view of Scripture, though it is not a, a biblical view of the Bible. People still have a, a decent view of the Bible saying, you look, it's a good book, there's a lot of good stuff in there, but the vast majority of people you're going to run into out there in the real world, they're the ones who are going to say, yeah, they, they were right about lots of stuff, but they got a lot of stuff wrong too. So they would look back and say, the you know homosexuality. What the Bible says about homosexuality? Yeah, they were just that's a product of their times. If the Bible was being written today, if the Law of Moses was being written today, it wouldn't have that in there. You know, you've heard people like this, right? That's just kind of the general view that a lot of people have, and uh, that view has some major problems, of course, because uh, how on earth would you know what to trust in your Bible? It would just depend on what the culture's doing that day, right? You wake up and the culture has moved 10 feet that direction or 50 feet that direction, and you say, oh, okay, so this is what's right now. And what the Bible said back then, now I understand that was wrong. It's just such a being tossed to and fro kind of view that takes God out of it totally. There, yeah, then we end up here where the Bible is a product of man's own interpretation or man's own effort, which is explicitly what the Bible says it is not. Okay. Other thoughts, other questions on these three false views? And I will positively define. I'm not just going to leave you here and then move on to the next thing. I'll, I'll give a positive view of, of how this works, but thoughts on these things. Yes. Yeah, the bottom two have a direct and obvious impact on the Bible's authority uh, where everything becomes questionable. And I think the second view leads right into the third view. I don't know how long people would actually stay in that second view. I think eventually they're going to end up in that third view. Now, uh, the first view, dictation, um, this is obviously the best option. If you had to pick one of these three... (laughs) I'm picking the first one, okay, because that errs on the side of God being the one who spoke these words. The end product is still God's word, okay? However, this view still falls short. It is is erring still. So even though it errs on the conservative side, it's still erring. And I'd say most of us in here, if we're going to err, we'd probably agree we want to err on the conservative side. But let's try to not err. Let's just try to see what the Bible says and make sure that we're being... Uh, in line with it, okay? Anything else before I move on to the next thing? I don't want to leave out any questions that might exist. Joe. Yes. Yeah, so that theory says basically, um, I, this is going to be a caricature of it. This isn't, you know, what a what someone who believes that would, they would not phrase it this way. But I'm going to phrase it this way, and you can adjust it in your mind however you want It's essentially the author of Scripture had his brain turned off and became a robot for God to write exactly what God wanted him to write. That's what you end up with with that view, where he's not choosing his own words. Remember, these people want to make sure they're erring on the side of, these are God's words, and so they're saying, look, um, what you have then is God choosing all of the words for them. To me, that that puts them in a place where they just become a robot for God. Stan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, it, it basically cuts out, it, it kind of jumps over what inspiration actually is. Inspiration is men being carried by God, and it just, it basically cuts out the middleman, which... But you can see the, uh, the safety in that, right? The, the, it feels safe. Because you get a middleman in there, and we're going to come around to this, um, it'll be next week. But if you've ever heard somebody say, um, how could fallen men produce a holy book? Paul was the chief of sinners, he said. How could he produce a holy book? That's a question people ask. And so a way to answer that is saying, well, God shut him down and gave him all the words he didn't, he didn't actually choose words. It was all God choosing for him. Okay, well, now you've solved that issue, but is that actually what happened? <laughs> I think that's why people go there. It's because there's more safety in it. All right? Let me, give, let me build up a definition, make a positive definition here. We must understand the words of the Bible to be both the words of God and of the human author. There is a pure correspondence between the two, God's words and man's words, when inspiration is happening. And God's involvement makes them inspired. So Moses, David, Isaiah, Obadiah, Paul, John, Peter, James, they all chose their own words. They were God's words. Okay? You have to be able to hold these two things in tension. This is actually a sign of theological maturity, if you can affirm both. So I have uh, below where I gave the definitions of the false view, you have these fill in the blanks. The authors chose their own words. They were God's words. When Paul was writing to his, um, say, you know, companions that he had known uh, in Corinth or at the end of Romans, Romans chapter 16, full of so many names, a people Paul knew and loved and appreciated. Was Paul truly writing to them out of love and appreciation for them? Well, you better believe he was. Yes, Paul truly loved and appreciated these people he listed off. When Paul's recounting in uh, the the letter to the churches in Galatia, when Paul's recounting his experience with Peter, and Peter, uh, you know, had acted a hypocrite, essentially. When the Pharisees came around, Peter stopped associating with the Gentiles. Paul rebuked him to his face. Was Paul truly as a human being remembering that and recounting that interaction that he had and sharing that for a purpose with the churches in Galatia? Well, of course he was. Did Paul, I keep using Paul, let's just switch it up. Uh, Mark, John Mark, the one who wrote the gospel of Mark and his audience was the Romans, okay, he was writing to Romans. When he wrote his gospel, did he have a purpose in why he wrote that gospel? Yes. It wasn't like one day he was just, you know, walking along, going to the grocery store, and then bang, God hit him, and now his brain is shut off, and he just wrote, 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 wrote. That's not how this works. He had a relationship with Romans. He had a relationship with people, and he had a heart for them, and he wanted to write to them. And God, in his divine grace, his beautiful sovereignty, superintended that whole process so that the result of everything that Mark said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was exactly what God wanted him to say. And at the same time, it's what Mark also wanted to say. He got to choose his own words, but they were God's words because God was superintending the entire process. God wasn't shutting off his brain and bypassing Mark. He was working through Mark. That's pretty cool stuff. That makes God, like, bigger, doesn't it? That he can do such a thing. Joe. It should be. That's good. That's good. This is like the both and of God. There is so much about God that is not an either-or choice, but it's both and. Is God one or is he three? What's the answer? Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Both. Yes, He is one and he is three. Did did, uh, Matthew choose his words or did God choose the words? Yes. Isn't that cool? I think that's amazing stuff. Did you choose to be saved or did God choose you to be saved? (laughs) Okay. All right. Now, one has to logically precede the other here, okay? But the answer is also yes, isn't it? Um, We recognize that God... Before the foundation of the world, chose those who would be saved. But when you choose to believe in Christ, is that a real human choice that you're actually choosing? Well, yeah. But isn't it also because of God? It's both and, isn't it? Both and. The beauty of God. Love this. Hopefully it's making God bigger in your mind. John Frame says, David writes in a very different way from Moses. Luke's writing is very different in style from that of John or of Paul. But as we have seen, all of these very different writers were chosen by God to convey his personal word to the world. So this really comes through when you study the original languages. If you study Greek, there's a reason why um, first-year Greek students at Bible college or seminary study John and go to John John's Greek because John wrote like a fisherman. John was simple. He used small words, okay? He was like the, uh, the Warren Wearsby of the apostles in that he wrote for the layperson. But then you get to Hebrews or the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke was a physician. You get to one of them, one of those books, and it's like, okay, those words are much bigger, and I don't know them. I don't know those words. If you're a first-year Greek student, John was, was speaking in the ABCs, and Luke's writing like a doctor. This is another way that we see how God used their personalities. If God would have shut off their personality and shut off the the human choice of it all, wouldn't it all be the same kind of Greek? Well, it would, but that's not the way it is. That is not the way it is. Their personalities actually shine through in the scripture without compromising the inspired nature of their words. God is so good, isn't he? This is so good. I love that. And I think it is a beautiful illustration of how so many things work in the world when we say, well, we have to choose divine sovereignty or human responsibility. We have to choose which one is it to the exclusion of the other. Oh, our God is the God of both and. Joe. Joe. No. (laughs) Now, you're close, but no, that's not it, um, because I'm not God, right? So, So if it was just me and you, I would tell you something, you'd write it down in your own words, and that's where it would end. But because we're talking about God, God is not just involved in the affecting their mind or telling them something side of it. He's also involved in how those words come off their pen side of it. Without running over, trampling, negating their personality. He's also involved as they write it. Now, they're, right, they're choosing their own words, but they're God's words. You could choose your own words, and they would not be my words. God is, God is omnipresent, and he's omnipotent, so he's, he's everywhere all the time. And he is specifically with his people in a special way. And when it comes to inspiration of the Bible, he was specifically with them in a special way. Because we're not inspired today. That's why this is so hard for us to understand. We can't sit down and write a letter to somebody and say, this is inspired by God. Even if we're we're choosing verses to write in there, we can't say that our choice of the verses was inspired. This was something that was uniquely special to the time of the apostles and before them the prophets. And so this is a unique process where God was not only involved in communicating to them, but the product that came off their pit. Yeah, well, I just did the best I could do. Okay. (laughs) That's, That's the best that I can do. All right. So what you have to maintain is that they chose their own words with their own personality. They were all God's words. And however you get to that, just maintain that. Okay, good. Dean. That makes hmm. Yeah. So yes. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes. Also, uh, so many of these passages are going to be in the sermon too today. Um, Colossians 2, 12 and 13. Some people will ask, okay, when you're being sanctified, when you're growing in holiness as a Christian, is it your work or God's work? Colossians 2, 12 and 13, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the God of the both and, isn't he? He is obviously the one who gets all the credit for your growth. But is that apart from your effort? No, it's not. Because you're told, work out your own salvation. That's, a, that's an imperative for you. But who gets the credit? Because who's in you working and willing? Yeah, that's right, God does. we got to maintain the both end. You, you can get in trouble when you say, no, it's got to be either or. You've got to pick one to the exclusion of the other. You can get some real trouble. And people will kind of get frustrated and be like, no, it's got to be one or the other. Well, your view of God has to get bigger, okay? Your view of God has to just expand. God's superintending of the human authors is the best picture of how his sovereignty and man's will or man's responsibility are compatible. I'm, I'm really convinced of that. If you ever get into one of these conversations about, why do bad things happen in the world? If God ordains everything, why do bad things happen? Think back to the illustration, or used as an illustration, how Scripture came to be. Someone asks, why are just some people saved? Why, aren't ev- why isn't everybody saved? Why do some choose to believe and others don't? Use this as an illustration. Go back to how Scripture came to be. Um, there are all kinds of ways you can use this idea of the inspiration of Scripture, this doctrine, as an illustration for other things. When, when we press into this and we see they chose their own words, they were God's words, there's a compatibility that exists between, between man's will and God's sovereignty. And I think it's a great illustration for other areas of life, okay? Thoughts, questions at this juncture? Connie. Yes, that's it. That not only that they were able, but that they did. And it was God's choice of using them in that moment at that time. So, yeah, and that's... um something I didn't really get into in this uh, section, but I'll make a a verbal note of here. The inspiration wasn't uh, an invitation. So it's not like um, God invited them to come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if they wanted to, to write a letter. That's not it either. Because, uh, number one, we don't have that presented in Scripture, and number two... That that really lessens God's sovereignty in all of this, because then it just becomes man's option if we end up with the New Testament or not. Instead, God worked through their circumstances and in their circumstances, and no matter how uh, you know in our minds we you know things would have played out in history, God was going to get this New Testament to us the way He wanted. God was going to get His way. So um, yes, it was the Holy Spirit who carried them along. That He it wasn't the Son of God, it wasn't God the Father. It was God the Spirit who inspired them, who is fully, truly God. Um, However, it wasn't just like the Holy Spirit said, hey, you want to write a letter to the Romans today? Let me know. And I'm I'm ready to, you know, do this inspiration thing when you are. Okay. And I know that's not what you're saying, but I just wanted to clarify. That's that's, that's not how that worked either. All right. Other thoughts or questions? Yes, ma'am. No, no dumb questions. Good. Sovereignty. Very good question. Very, very good. Okay. Sovereignty. I'm erasing this as though I'm going to write a definition, and I don't know if I have enough confidence to do that. But sovereignty. I've been using that word a lot without defining it, so that's very good, Sarah. Thank you for bringing that up. God's sovereignty references a few things. We can say His kingdom rule. As creator, all things that exist exist by the will of God. Revelation four eleven, by your will, all things exist and were created. So God is utterly separate from all of creation as the creator, and He has all rule over everything. It's uh, Psalm twenty four also found in 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 8, where the psalmist declares and then Paul repeats, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we see here um, also possession of all things. God not only presides as ruler and as king over all things, he possesses all things. Can you name one thing in the universe That is not owned by God. Psalm one hundred says, "We, uh, He is the Shepherd; we are the sheep of His pasture." Okay, all things belong to God. Okay, so we have this idea of rule, along with this idea of possession of all things, and now we also have this: God has holy control over all things. God has holy control. So um, we can see this in a variety of places in Scripture where, uh, for instance, here's a, here's a fun one. Let's, let's, let's do this. Uh, Proverbs 16, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4. Here's a verse that you may not have known exists in the Bible. Proverbs 16, verse 4. Someone want to read that for me, please? Mike, go ahead. Sorry. Did I say Psalm? Proverbs. Proverbs 16. 16.4. Yeah, sorry. Proverbs 16, verse 4. So look for here, kingdom rule as creator, possession control. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Woo, wee. Now we've just bumped into some real sovereignty, haven't we? Hey. How sovereign is God? He's in holy control over all things. Now, again, thinking back to. Um, compatibility between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. Thinking back to this, is the evil man still responsible for his actions? Is he held accountable for his actions? Is he going to be judged for his actions? You better believe it. But does he fall outside of God's holy control? No, he does not. Fun. Fun. Now, when we get to soteriology, which is the next section in a few weeks, and we start talking about salvation, that's where we're really going to press into this. Okay, so if God is fully in control, then how was I saved? Who gets credit? Hmm, what's, what's the role of faith? How does that work? Well, we'll talk about all that. Okay, basic definition, though. There you go. But I'm open any, because this was on the fly. Anything anybody want to add to this? Yeah, good. Yeah, they're the omnis, you could say. The omnis. His omnipotence, omniscience, his omnipresence. Okay? Um, omnipotence, he's all-powerful. He's all-powerful. Can God make a, a boulder so so big and heavy he can't lift it? Well, no, because if he can make it, he can lift it, all right? And, and he can do it. Omniscience, knowledge, he knows all things. God, is, he knows all things. Is there one thing out there, past, present, future, that God does not know? He knows all things, comprehensively. And there's a, a view called open theism. I've debated one of the most prominent open theists. His name is Will Duffy, um, Open theism says God doesn't know the future. And you know why they do that? Because they don't want God to have holy control over everything. They want man to have control. And the only way man can truly have control is if God doesn't know what man's going to do next. That's how they get there. And then there's omnipresence. God is, of course, in all places at once. Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? The answer is... Nowhere, David in Psalm 139 declares God's omnipresence. Uh, Jeremiah 23, you fill heaven and earth, O Lord. If God fills heaven and earth, that's, again, pretty comprehensive, isn't it? But in a special way, too, He is with His people. In this new covenant, as we have the Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts, we have 100% of God, the Holy Spirit, the full person of the Holy Spirit, with each of us individually. And together, as we come together as a local church. So all the Christians in the world have the Holy Spirit with them individually. All the local churches in the world, the true churches, when they come together to worship, have the Holy Spirit with them. They are also the temple of the Spirit. And of course, the Spirit cannot be hidden from anywhere in the world. No unbeliever can hide from Him. God is omnipresent. So the omnis do play a role in that too. So thanks for reminding me of that, Dean. Roy. Roy. Mm. Yeah. 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 So, and and that's Moses, of course, recounting what happened in the past. And there are times, of course, where God does speak audibly that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Or even at... um, Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven, this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. God will will break through and speak audibly, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. Good. Very good. Yes. Okay. Good point. So dictation, uh, that dictation theory is not completely without merit in that, Anytime there are quotations used around God said, quote, verbatim, end quote, that's dictation. At that point, they are stenographers for what God has said directly. They are transcribing what God has said directly. They are not choosing their own words. They are quoting God. Okay. So outside of that, that's a very good point, Roy. I need to add... Where's my pen? I need to add a slide for next time I teach through this that, that goes into that. Um, because and at those times, that is dictation. But the other parts of the Bible, so say, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says, I say, not the Lord, but I say, etc. cetera, et cetera. Well, what's going on there? Is he saying I'm no longer inspired? Well, no, that's not what he's saying, because he also says in that letter, what I command you is a command of the Lord. He's saying, I am not directly quoting the Lord right here. He's actually making it explicit. He's not dictating, okay? And so there are lots of times where they're not dictating, but there are times when they are. So I I need to add that, um, and I will make a note of that right now. Any other thoughts or questions, or any other slides I need to add in future lessons? Mike. Mike. Yes, yes, yep, very good, yep, good stuff. we got five minutes left. Here's your challenge. See who's brave enough. I'm your neighbor all of a sudden. Tell me how the Bible got from God's mind to us today. (laughs) Well, <laughs> oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm one of your unbelieving neighbors, how about that? Okay, I'm one of your non-Christian neighbors, you're having a conversation about the Bible. Who wants to take a stab at how the Bible got from God's mind to us today? Who's brave out there? Hey, we'll, we'll miss the main service. I'll just stand here until someone does it. Because, you know, these are conversations you got to have. You got to have. You'll encounter people that say, well, wait a second. We can't trust the Bible. That was just men writing the Bible. What are you going to say? Thank you, Renee. I think that's pretty good. (laughs) Okay, good job, Renee. (laughs) Rex says he's got nothing to add to that. Yeah, that's good. Good job. Okay, so think about this because, again, I don't want this ever to be. I know we're doing theology classes here, and we're doing, you know, some, a little bit of college-level stuff here as we're talking about this. You're not writing papers or taking tests, but this is college-level content, Bible college-level I don't want this ever just to be, okay, we learned something today, we'll go home and watch TV and forget it over the course of the next three days. You're going to forget a lot of this, that's how human brains work, especially mature human brains. (laughs) (laughs) Um, However, the 10% or 5% that you can hang on to from this, I want you to be able to apply to your life. I want you to be able to use in your life. Not just be able to have a fun fact or be able to answer a question on a quiz or something like that. But we're we're dealing with real we are real people who are dealing with real people in the real world. So this needs to impact that. All right? Very good. Well, how about I pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we thank you so much for today and for your inspired word. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to look into it and study and much more of that we get to do today and for the rest of our lives, that we can explore the amazing, vast expanse of the depths of your knowledge that you've given to us in Scripture. God, help us to not only uh, understand these things cognitively, but that we would understand these things with a heart application for ourselves and for those that we come into contact with, that we would be able to honor you in the way that we speak of you and think about you uh, in the days ahead. God, we love you so much, and we ask your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.